official K1 podcast, K1 Battlecast. Oh, the Slugfest! You'll get news, fight reviews, and fighter interviews. Oh, the Battlecast! And now, your hosts, Michael Shamero and Jonathan Shea. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. This week, I'm going to be holding down the fort by myself as Michael flies around the world scouring for information that is K1 related. Just kidding, he's still in Australia. We have another great show lined up for you for Friday, which is our regular schedule. But because we had some extra material lying around, we thought we didn't want to let it go to waste, so we decided to give you a bonus episode today. What is that material, you ask? Well, we had some extra questions from my interview with Master Ishii of the Sado Kaikan and the father of K1. And then we're going to move on to the best and worst entrance songs. Now, as a strange coincidence, Michael and I happen to choose entrance songs from two fighters who used to train at the same gym. And if you have an idea of who those might be, please send us an email. I will include that information in the description. Or you can alternately contact us on Facebook or X. So keep a, an eye out for those accounts as well. Contact us, let us know what you think, and we would love to hear from you. Okay, with that housekeeping out of the way, let's move on now to our interview with Master Ishii that we picked back up. You might want to pick that up. That up. One of the questions that Michael posed to Ishii Kancho was about Bob Sapp, this giant of a man who at the time when he joined K1 defied expectations about size and physicality. Where did he meet him and how was it that he was able to recruit him for K1? Let's have a listen. I went to Las Vegas for a tournament that K1 was having. And Sam Greco came up to me and said, Hey, there's this guy who just retired from pro wrestling. Would you like to meet him? He's enormous. And I looked at him and indeed he was gigantic. And he weighed about 180 kilograms, and his legs were enormous. And I thought, wow, this guy could be interesting. Maybe we could bring him in. And he actually came. So we tested him to see how fast he could run and how much he could bench press. And he could run an 11-second 100-meter dash. And I just knew that if we trained him right, he would be able to really go somewhere. And I wanted to take my time with Bob. I wanted to make sure that he didn't rush into the ring. But he got too popular too quickly and took fights that were out of his league. And I, I wanted to be by Bob's side and to teach him properly. I think if I had been able to do that, he would have been an incredibly strong fighter. He would have grown into that. But unfortunately, he was paired up with Mirko Krokop and got his orbital bone broken. He was also dealing with injuries from football and he just had a string of bad luck. It's too bad, because I think with the proper training, he could have been a much better fighter. But unfortunately, I think he just got so popular that it was a really hard choice for him, at least in my opinion. So that's really one of my regrets when it comes to Bob Sapp. I'd like to have seen just how far he could have gone. Moving on to other topics, Michael posed a question to Ishii Kancho about the now-defunct K2 and K3. 
He wanted to know more about the thought process that led to these and what happened to them. Where did they go? Let's hear what Ishii Kancho has to say. K1 was the heavyweight division, K2 was the cruiserweight, and K3 was the middleweight. But in order to protect the rights for K1 required a lot of resources. Add to that K2, K3, K4, there was no way that we could protect all those intellectual property rights, so we ended up giving up on them. In K2, fighters like Rob Kamen and Ernesto Hust, Champwek, then there was Hippolyte in K3. They were exciting tournaments. But we just didn't think we could maintain K2 and K3. So we changed the name. We used to call it K1 Cruiserweight, K1 Middleweight. So while the other organizations of K2 and K3 eventually fell by the wayside, in a sense they kind of combined K1 and K2, there were some lighter heavyweights who would fight in the super heavyweight category. And then in 2002, they kind of resurrected the K3 category when they created K1 World Max, which is an acronym for Middleweight Artistic Extreme. So we had K1 as the pinnacle of fighting excellence. And then instead of having K2, K3, K4, which was difficult to understand, we changed trajectory, we changed direction, and we just focused on K1. Now, Master Ishii and I also had the opportunity to talk about one fighter in K1's history who was particularly beloved by many, many fans. His name was Andy Hug. They called him Andy Hug in Japan. He was an incredibly charismatic fighter, and I'm sure there's plenty of opportunity for us to go into more detail in the future about Andy. But Ishii Kancho and I had a, an opportunity to talk about their relationship. He came by himself from Switzerland to Japan, and he trained here, living as a Japanese. We used to call him the blue-eyed samurai. He had a very Japanese spirit, even more so than, say, the Japanese people. He practiced more than anyone. Because he was practicing so hard and he had a very straightforward way of living, there's no way that the Japanese couldn't fall in love with him. He did his best to follow my instructions and he was very much like a son to me. At the end, he expressed his appreciation of me and his care for me and I said the same to him. He went out when he was shining most brightly, kind of like Bruce Lee or James Dean. He was really special to everyone, myself included. Kancho goes on to express the idea that those who go out when their candle is shining most brightly seem to live on in the memories the longest. Now, Michael posed to him, the question, if you could create one matchup between two fighters, which one would you like to see? Fighters that never got the chance to fight. 
And his answer was a bit surprising to me because he'd actually seen this fight once. He wanted more than anything to see a rematch between Francesco Filio and Andy Hug. Well, I'd like to see a rematch between Filio and Hug. I was hoping to arrange that. As you probably know, Andy lost their first match at a Kyokushin Karate tournament. But when they were in the K1 ring, Andy felt confident that he had the upper hand because he was the more experienced of the two. When Andy lost, that must have been very disappointing to him. Just what I was hoping to give Andy a chance for a rematch at the Nagoya Dome, Unfortunately, he didn't get the chance. If Andy had approached the match with Filio with a bit more humility, I think he would have had a better chance. I always kind of regretted that he never got that opportunity. I didn't feel like he was taking Filio seriously enough. He also must have had some extra pressure because he was the older of the two. So he felt like he had something to prove. He may have lost with karate, but he didn't plan on losing in K1. Filio showed a bit more humility and worked his plan. We hope you enjoyed that bonus interview material with Master Ishii. Now we're going to take a dive into the best and worst of K1 ring entrances, which didn't make it into the show last Friday. Before we do, though, I'd just like to throw out a caveat that as much as we'd like to, we can't add the music to our podcast due to copyright concerns. What I will do is add them to the show description so you can go check them out on your own. And I'll add the links to the entrances we featured last week, as well as a couple that didn't survive the dive to the cutting room floor. As much as I'm tempted, I won't make any corny KO jokes here. Today, Michael and I focus on the ring entrances that we thought were the best, but I have seen some in the past that are questionable, and that's being generous. So, if you have an idea of one that you loved or you hated, let us know. I mean, don't even get me started about the guy in Seoul who walked into the ring in orange Crocs and a big goofy white t-shirt. Anyway, with all of that finally out of the way, let's get in to the three that we have today. One of these fighters is synonymous with K1. The other two songs are from fighters who were teammates at that time. Who are we talking about? Well, I'll give you a hint. One of them is the bad boy of K1 himself. He shows us a strangely sentimental side this time. I'm not sure that he did this entrance more than once, but it was surely memorable. Here we go. I'm going to mention, Jonathan, a ring entrance that is very left of field, I suppose. But for me, it is one of my favorite K1 heavyweight entrances of all time. Now, listeners may have to be do a bit of a dig on YouTube to find it, but it is worth it. And I don't know if you'll agree with me, Jonathan. All right. I don't know if a lot of fans will agree with me, but it was Bada Hurry's 2006 entrance when he fought Paul Slowinski. Yeah. Bada comes out. Now, now, now let, me, let me preface here by, by saying Bada would usually come out to some amped up song. And when he'd appear on stage, he'd be with his trainer, Mike Passanier. Mike would say secretive words to him. No one ever knew what Mike would say, but they would fire Butter up into this state of almost um, carnage ecstasy, this state of murderous 
rampage in Butter's eyes that Mike Passinier would build him up to, and he'd slap Butter across the face, and he'd slap and punch Butter in the chest, and Butter would be like, to go, boss, I'm ready to kill. Yeah. And Melvin Manoff would be there as well, and Manoff would get in Butter's face. It was crazy. But this entrance in 2006 against Slowinski was like nothing we've seen from Butter before. Butter came out to the song, and pardon to my Dutch fans, my Dutch isn't great, but I believe it's called Ik Lief Men Eget Levit by Dutch artist Andres Hazes. Butter wore a T-shirt that said Gwinnett Forever. It was a tribute to Gwinnett Martha, a notorious Amsterdam underworld figure who was killed, um, I believe, shortly before this fight. There was no slapping from Mike Passanier. There was no psyching up from Big Mike and his team. Bada slow walked to the ring and sang the entire song, word for word. This was a slow, emotional song. This song meant a lot to Bada Hurry. It was kind of weird to see that side of Bada, but also beautiful. And let me tell you the lyrics to this song. Now, now remember, Bada Hurry was like 21 years old at the time. This is such a profound song for him to have used as a 21-year-old. And the lyrics go like this. I close my eyes and think, and then everything passes through me. Then I see my whole life. I enjoyed it a lot, but also cried a lot. But I will never regret that. Jonathan, that is pretty bloody emotional stuff there from a 21-year-old butter hurry. Yeah, I, I can still see his face, the the look on his face when he was walking out. It was one of the most chilling visages. It reminded me of burning ice, if that's, if that's a way to describe it. His eyes were just so intense and his expression was so riveting. I was, I was, I couldn't keep my eyes off his face. Oh no, singing the whole way down, his eyes were dark. And you know, Buddy used to get that dark, almost shark-like, you know, great white shark, dark black eyes, yeah. that look about him before a fight. So you couple that look you're talking about, Jonathan, with the fact that he's singing this very emotional song. And I I cannot understand the song, but mm. even so, I love it. I've listened to this song many times since that Bada Hurry entrance. It's stuck with me. It's a beautiful song. Do check it out on YouTube. But for me, this is one of the greatest K1 entrances of, of all time. I love it. Absolutely. Well, I got to um, agree with you there, Michael. I, I, I think this really was a one to remember. Oh, 100%. I, I, I love this one. But uh, there is one, Jonathan, for me that takes the cake. Okay. There is one that takes the cake. Uh, do you want to give me your best one first, or shall I give you my best one overall? I'll just give you one brief one. It's the same Mike Passanier team, but not Bader Hari, Melvin Manouf. Oh, Melvin. And he'd often fight in the same category, even though he's, he's not the tallest heavyweight. He is pound for pound, perhaps the strongest, um, just this, this beast of a man. And, uh, he would walk out with a dog collar on, just ready to go. And it was Mike's job to just let him off the leash and go kill whoever he was up against. It was it was fun, as gruesome as that sounds. It was amongst the most intense ring entrances, I think, of any combat sport athlete in history. You're right. It was epic. 
It was absolutely epic. The dog chain around the neck, uh, the Mike Passanier slapping, the secret words, whatever they were yeah. that, that Mike said. Melvin was a killer. I mean, don't forget, this is the guy, and as, as Jonathan said, short by stature, power in his hands that, that um, you know, were not typical of a man his size. This is the guy Undeniable. who knocked out Mark Hunt. Mark Hunt. Yeah. He knocked out Mark Hunt in yeah. 18 seconds. Oh Are you gosh. kidding me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 18 seconds. So you're right. It, it needed an intense walkout for an intense fighter. And Melvin my- always had the most amazing smile on his face as he was about to commit carnage in the ring. He just would, he was gleeful as he danced out to the ring. Because Melvin knew, Jonathan, Melvin knew he was about to perform an act where he could get as close as possible to murdering someone without having to go to legally. That's what it was. Legally. Yeah. Right? He could legally beat up men. That's what he did. He put people unconscious. He sent people to the hospital. Yeah. And he could do it all legally. And you know what? I had the great privilege to commentate with Melvin um, back in uh, Lyon in France, I think it was, many moons ago, and spend time with Melbourne. Yes. Out of the ring, one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. One of the nicest guys ever. I, I Quiet bet. Quiet spoken, soft spoken, a gentleman. In the ring, once the dog leash came off, he was rabid. Many fighters are like that. You know another guy who's like that? It's the guy that wins my best entrance of all time. Okay. Uh, this is Peter Ritz. This is Mr. Oh, yeah. K1. Now, Peter had many ring entrances in his career, many different themes. He had uh, Hump It by the Black Eyed Peas, Guns and Roses, Welcome to the Jungle. But in my opinion, when he used, I think it was called Mizulu from Pulp Fiction, yeah. when you heard those words from the movie, you know, then I'll execute every mother effing last one of you. Yeah, yeah. Then you heard that famous Dick Dale guitar, you know, Dick Dale and Deltones guitar riff, ding, 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 ding. And you were on your feet. You yeah. were jumping out of your seat at the Tokyo Dome or Osaka or Nagoya or in Amsterdam or in Hawaii, wherever it was. Peter came out with a lumberjack's vest on. He had the lumberjack's hat, the way he walked, the death stare in his eyes, everything about Peter Earps, the Pulp Fiction entrance, it screamed murderous high kick, hellacious rampage incoming. Run for the freaking hills or get decapitated by Peter Ertz. For me, Jonathan, Peter Ertz, Hulk Fiction, Miserloo was the best ring entrance of all time in K1. Well, I can't disagree with you. Um, he, I wonder if his heart rate ever went over 45 as he walked through that crowd. <laughs> he just was so cool. He was cool. And the other thing about Peter, again, inside the ring, murderous. Absolutely showed no mercy for any opponent. Would try to lock their heads off, you know, like he was in the Highlander. Uh, but outside of the ring, literally the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Always greeting me with a big, huge laugh. You can hear the laugh from a mile away. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a, it's like Santa Claus. You know, this big, huge, guffawing laugh. Then it's Mikey. How you going, brother? And a big hug. Yeah. And he does that to everybody. But in the ring, the man's insane. It's just that that duality of kickboxing and and martial arts is incredible. And no one epitomized K1 more than Peter Ertz. 
And that ring entrance alone for me is just unbeatable. I'll, I'm with you there, Michael. I think, uh, I think we both agree on this one. Those were our favorites. Which one are yours? Let us know on Facebook or X. We'd love to hear from you. So Michael and I began having conversations about doing Battlecast, this podcast that we have in, in mind for K1 and going over the history and the high points and maybe the low points of uh, K1's 30-year history. And within a week, he had interviewed Stefan Leko. He's like, I've got Tom Herrick in the works. He had interviewed Paul Slawinski and... He has many, many, many other people in the wings that he has in mind. Um, so there's a lot of content there to look forward to. But I was shocked because I've got in my inbox five interviews from these amazing people from the world of kickboxing without even blinking. We have a teaser for you today of, let's say, two of those interviews that we have lined up. One of them is going to be on Friday, so you're definitely going to want to catch that. It's with Iron Mike Zambitas. And the other one is none other than Mark Hunt. So we'll let you listen to some teasers from those episodes today. But please keep in mind that we have plenty of other interviews in the works. Um, didn't want to reveal too much today, but just enough to kind of pique your interest. So give it a listen and let us know what you think. Tell me about fighting Buakau in 2006. What was that experience like? The fight against Buakau in 2006 was of great interest to many people around the world. At the time, I just started a new campaign which focused on weight work in the gym rather than focusing on sparring. Buakau presented a very big challenge for me, and I don't think I was quite ready for the challenge. But I wasn't going to be scared of him. I always accept a challenge, and I fought Buakau at his very best. My coach was in Thailand, so he wasn't there for me for the fight. Even though Buakau went on to become a two-time K1 champion, I never considered Buakau to be a superior fighter to me. I treated Buakau like any other fight, and I didn't find anything extraordinary about Buakau. I wasn't fully prepared, but I took him on and I fought him. I wasn't overawed by Buakau at all. Mike, what was your best win in K1? Not so fast, Michael. Why don't we wait until Friday, December 22nd, when we release more of this exclusive interview with Mike Zambitis, and he goes into more detail about a fight which many call the greatest fight in kickboxing history. All right, next up, we have an interview with Mark Hunt. And Mark comes out with these really cool headphones that have lasers coming out of the sides, green and blue, sometimes purple. And now I realize it's a little bit unfair to describe this to you when we don't have a YouTube channel. And perhaps this is a bit of impetus for us to get our act together and finally put that YouTube channel together. We're working on it, so please be patient. But anyways, Mark comes out with these headphones, which are really visually impressive. And it actually kind of makes it look like he's getting information beamed to his brain from what location? Nobody knows. Um, some secret bunker on Mars or something. And he and Michael have a really 
in-depth conversation about Mark Hunt's career. And I'm just going to give you a little taste of that right now to show you what we have in store for you in the next coming weeks. Okay, let's take a listen to that now. Did you think back then, when you were backstage about to fight Chris Chrysopolides in front of a thousand people at Crown, that one day, and not too far away, you would become the greatest heavyweight kickboxer on the planet? Could you have imagined that? I always thought I was the best fighter in the world. I just needed a chance to prove it and go through that. It just, you know, that was the beginning. I think I was like 24 or something years old. I was young. Um, And um, yeah, I think I was maybe younger, but that that was, uh, I've always felt in my heart I I was a better fighter than every fight, everybody. And I've always felt this way. Um, I just, I just, I might not have looked like the best fighter in the world, but inside my mind and my heart, I was. <laughs> Mark, let's go to the 2001 K1 World Grand Prix. Now, Michael, if we did that, we wouldn't have anything else to talk about. So let's keep that on the down low, okay? Um, all right, well, those are a couple excerpts from our upcoming interviews. We hope you enjoyed those. And that pretty much does it for today's show. I'd like to end today with a little bit of history from myself, my humble beginnings here at K1. Um, I have proof that both Michael and I were sitting ringside at the K1 World Max 2008 World Tournament. Now, it's not a great picture, mind you. It's a little bit rough around the edges, but, you know, I had to clip it from a video that was 328 pixels or something like that. The resolution isn't great because it's a clipping from a video and you get the idea. But I'm going to upload that onto Facebook. So please take a look out for that um, just to provide the proof. My my head structure is pretty much the same. I haven't been knocked about too much, although <laughs> it might have done me some good. Um, but OK, that does it for today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. It's a taste of things to come and letting you see a little bit behind the scenes on how we put this show together and, uh, you know, send us an email. You can do so at the email address that will be provided in the show description. I'll also put links to the songs as I discussed earlier and, uh, you know, reach out. All right, everyone, have a great week until Friday when we upload episode two. This is unofficially episode 1.1. It's a bonus. Um, All right. Hope to see you on Friday. Until then, have a great week. Bye.